Hey guys, welcome to A Dying Podcast. My name is Nils, and in a second, we're going to head into today's episode, which is a conversation with Seth Lyon, who is in Canada. Uh, I promise you that's going to be really interesting. But before we get started, uh, I just wanted to note that I did not release an episode last week. Some of you might have noticed that, which I hope is perfectly fine. I decided not to because just too many things are happening right now. It's all exciting stuff. And two of them are worth mentioning for you guys listening because hopefully or potentially it could be of interest for you. So one is that the World of Wisdom project that I covered in episode number 63 of this podcast, which is um, the project which is taking most of my attention these days because it has to do with trying to improve the world uh, and then do something about the state we're in as humanity. So it's basically this open source global network of co-created gatherings where people come to welcome challenges, personal, local or global challenges using curiosity, playfulness and co-creation, uh, kind of like a burning man uh, combined with uh, a hackathon, combined with well, all sorts of stuff. Anyway, if you're interested in that, feel free to listen to episode number 63. And the news is that the very first World of Wisdom gathering has now been um, launched. It's going to happen in April 2020, uh, April 10 to 12 in Sweden, Holle, which is an island. And if you want to be part of that, uh, go to worldwisdom.io to sign up for the mailing list. And uh, there'll be more information uh, there for how to join that uh, event if you're interested. Uh, Also, if you're interested to set up a gathering of your own in your country, feel free to reach out to me uh, or the World of Wisdom movement uh, to to get some support for making that happen. And then the second thing I wanted to point out before we get going with the episode is that I am um, doing something together with Ruda Yanda, the Brazilian shaman who's also been on this uh, podcast and what we're doing is that we're gonna do a first retreat together, a shamanic retreat in the north of Lapland, in very far north of Norway, in February 2020. For men only uh, this time, so it's a it's a men's men's gathering uh, where we go deep into what it means to be a man and how. We're often taught to be a man in a way that doesn't really make sense these days. We're going to connect with ourselves and go deep into the cold and quiet winter uh, using all sorts of tools we have at hand, both Ruda's um, competences and skills. And then I'm going to bring some stuff to the table as well, combining the things I am going deep into right now, which is modern day coaching, as well as sound healing, sound meditation practices, and also shamanic healing, bodywork, etc. So we're calling this thing Spirit of Winter. If you're a man (laughs) and you feel this is potentially interesting for you to to join, uh, feel free to reach out to me as well. Um, My email is nils at wishful.se. Hoping I can... Uh, put it out there without getting too much spam. <laughs> anyway, that said, that's that's enough of the self-promotion for today and the promotion of the World Wisdom Movement. And without further ado, let's head into a conversation with Seth Lyon. Welcome to A Dying Podcast. Today, I'm having a, an online conversation with Seth Lyon. Seth, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Fantastic. So first off, where are you? I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada, uh, here in the, uh, the northern, northern climes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cool. And I'm in Sweden and we've already suffered some malfunctions in this online conversation, having to start over. So we'll, we'll just start over. <laughs> yeah, no problem. There's tons of stuff I want to talk about and learn about you, but for anyone listening who perhaps doesn't know Seth, let's just start with the simple question, who is Seth Lyon? Sure. So uh, I'll give you just a, a brief overview, which should give you, you know, some entryways into, into your questions. Uh, right now, and for the past six years, I had a private practice in Vancouver. I'm a somatic trauma specialist. I'm not a therapist technically uh, because I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, I've got extensive training in 
a couple somatic modalities called somatic experiencing and somatic practice. And they're both forms of nervous system-based trauma resolution. And we're working at the level of the nervous system primarily, which is where we found that trauma fundamentally lives and it's the place that we want to address it. And that ripples out in all sorts of ways through our, our physiology, our psyche, our emotions. But fundamentally, it's in the nervous system. Now, before I found this work, I had spent uh, almost 13 years really living apart from the world. Uh, I lived in Hawaii, like just camping on the beaches for a while and in small communities. I lived in a hot springs community in Oregon for about seven years, really living apart from the world. And I had done that because I had had, I guess, what you would call a spiritual awakening uh, during my first uh, 10-day Vipassana sit when I was in my early 20s. And I, I basically came out of that experience and headed off into the woods for about 13 years, uh, just really interested in exploring myself and exploring uh, my consciousness. Um, I was... I knew that I had had a difficult upbringing. I didn't realize at that time the extent to which I was traumatized. Um, but that was really my entryway into you know, my journey was working on myself and working to understand myself, to heal myself. And then eventually I, I found this work, Somatic Experiencing, and it really clicked. I was like, aha, this is giving me a piece that I was missing. And so I also, at that time, met my wife, Irene, who lived in Vancouver. And so uh, she was kind enough to import me up here to uh, Vancouver. And I, I started the training myself and started doing sessions for myself and just really was blown away by the work. And it just really inspired me to want to help others as I became more healed myself. So that's just a, a brief overview of sort of, you know, crazy uh, hippie meditator guy living in the woods um, to being now a, a professional with a private practice and helping other folks recover from trauma. Cool. That's fascinating. So I, I truly have to ask um, because I've gone through this awakening experience myself and I, I, I did not move for 13 years, <laughs> you know, into the woods or living on a beach, but I definitely had the sensation of wanting to sort of close myself off from society for a couple of years. Um, and so that's a similarity, but I just wanted to ask, why do you think that is that for some people, when they go through that kind of awakening, that's actually what happens. You sort of close yourself off from the rest of society. Mm-hmm. I think there, for me, I know there were a few reasons, and I think that often that's the case. I mean, one, spiritual tradition has historically uh, been engaged in, in a setting that is apart from the world. I mean, if we look at the different traditions across the world, there's, you know, lots of monasteries and uh, places where people who are really seriously dedicating themselves can be apart from the world and its demands of, you know, build and money and making a living and relationships and noise, traffic, pollution, you know, all the things that are existing uh, in the world that can be quite overwhelming uh, when one, I think, gets to a new level of awareness, especially at the beginning. Like, it's a very sensitive time uh, when you do start to connect to this larger sense of self and start to explore your consciousness. I think that's a big part of it. And the reason why, you know, many traditions have these settings of more isolation, maybe at a monastery or, you know, a cave in the mountains. And then, you know, I think there's a secondary reason, at least I know there was for me, that I wasn't aware of at the time, but that actually was my trauma, my unresolved trauma was already making the world a much more overwhelming place for me than it necessarily uh, needed to be, or that it may be for other people who weren't traumatized. So for me, there was both of those things. I mean, the world was already difficult for me to manage because of the trauma I was carrying in my system. And I think that, yeah, especially at the beginning, spiritual practice and meditation and exploration of consciousness is very well supported by a little bit of space from the busy, busy world. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. And so obviously you make me curious about trauma. Um, mm. 
Like, how would you define it if you're willing to go into what your trauma has been? Um, that'd be interesting too. But yeah, just let's start opening it. What what is yeah. trauma? Well, let's start with that because that is actually a really important question, and it's something that is just starting to become a little bit more understood now. The field that I'm part of, which is what we call sort of the new traumatology, this is a body of work that arose starting in the late 60s, early 70s, primarily with the work of a man named Peter Levine. And he's the, the guy who developed the modality somatic experiencing. What he discovered is that though the effects of trauma play out in our thoughts and they play out in our emotions and they play out in our body, fundamentally what it is is something that's happening in the nervous system. And what that is is We, as mammals, have the same survival responses as all other mammals. You know, any to think of any mammal out there, we all have the same basic nervous system architecture. And those survival responses, that is, those energies that come when we feel under threat, are our fight-flight response, which is pretty well known, right? It gets you all amped up and ready to run away or fight. But then there's also the freeze response, And that is a different branch of the nervous system, a branch of the parasympathetic that comes on when essentially our system thinks it's going to die. So we can't fight. We can't run away. You know, if you think of like a gazelle, you know, caught in a lion's jaws that just goes limp or plays dead, as they say, that is the freeze response coming on. It numbs us out uh, to sensation, uh, essentially to preserve us from the experience of, of death. And to make it easier. So those are the survival responses, fight, flight, and freeze. What trauma fundamentally is, is when these very powerful responses become activated and they do not deactivate. And see, this is the real thing that separates us from animals in the wild. This is how Peter Levine made his discovery. He realized animals in the wild do not become traumatized, and yet we do. And animals in the wild face survival threats every day. I mean, apparently more serious than we do, and yet they do not become traumatized, and we do. And what he realized was that because of many factors, including our social conditioning, lack of education, lack of understanding ourselves and what's going on, is that we can get these survival responses perked up, especially early in childhood, and they are often not allowed to complete. They become stuck. And when they become stuck, they are essentially still playing out in the body. So if we think about anxiety, for example, which is one of the most common uh, mental or emotional difficulties that people struggle with, what anxiety is, is a fight-flight response that's stuck humming away in the system. It's saying, hey, there's a danger. You need to threat. You know, you need to run, you need to fight, there's a threat here. And yet it's under the surface, right? So it's not showing up in such a huge way. It's showing up as this nervousness, the sense that something is wrong, but we don't know what. There must be a problem somewhere. That's anxiety. It's fundamentally in that unresolved fight-flight response. So that's what trauma fundamentally is, is these survival energies that have not been allowed to complete. Wow. And in, in your specific case, then when did you realize that you, you had trauma and what, what kind of trauma was it? If you're open to sharing that and Absolutely. then, and then, and then what happened? <laughs> yeah. Well, I knew in an abstract sense that I had been traumatized. I didn't really understood what that meant until I started the somatic experiencing training because I didn't really know what trauma was. Right. The more that I learned how trauma gets formed, the more I realized how screwed up I had been. For me, and this is really important, you know, I, I wasn't beaten. Um, you know, I wasn't living in a war zone. Uh, I wasn't experiencing most of the things that people generally think of when they think of trauma. And this is, this, I mean, we can get more into this. This is a huge subject in terms of how trauma gets formed very easily in our industrialized society. 
So I didn't fully realize the extent of what had happened to me until I became really educated about what trauma is. But I knew, you know, basically that I didn't feel safe in the world. That's the, the easiest way to put it. I just didn't feel safe in the world. And for me, that's because um, of many experiences. Um, one of the most formative ones was I was born six weeks early and spent the first many weeks of my life in an incubator separated from my primary attachment figure, my mom. That alone is a huge trauma in the system. Because as infants, even though we don't have our higher brain online, we can't think about our situation, our physiology has its own intelligence that knows what it needs to develop properly. Anything that gets in the way of that proper development and support is considered by the physiology a life threat. So even earlier than coming out six weeks early, even in my mother's womb, she was highly stressed. She was traumatized. And I was receiving that through her DNA, through the stress chemistry coming through the umbilical cord. So even my experience in the womb was not safe. That's how early trauma can happen, even in the womb. And we're making these connections now, actually seeing the connections through generations. This is something that is passed down. I believe the latest study showed they could trace it through 14 generations. Wow. through the DNA. That's epigenetics, right? It's how the DNA itself is altered by trauma, and then that information is encoded and passed on. So those are the very early beginnings of my trauma. And then that basically set up my system that already by the time I was a baby, I had learned to, what I would say, recruit my survival responses as a way to manage primarily by using that freeze response, which numbs you out. And again, these aren't conscious decisions. These are instinctual physiological actions that happen because the organism senses that it isn't safe, that it's not getting what it needs. So I, you know, that was formed very early on. This tendency to default towards freeze is how we put it. The system tends to default to freeze when threat arises. Then later on, you know, my folks got split up when I was two, so there was that rupture. My dad was very angry and explosive, even though he didn't beat me. You know, I did get some spankings, which is physical violence. You know, we still we minimize spankings; it's still being hit, but I wasn't like punched or anything. Um, my mom was very depressed. Um, she had that in her system, so I had these two households: one where I was hyper vigilant and on edge, and like waiting for my dad to explode, and one where it was more cozy and safe feeling, but was very depressed and sort of lethargic and collapsed. And that was my mom's house. And so I, as a kid, you know, I went back and forth between these houses every two weeks, and it was just a uh, you know putting through the ringer basically from the nervous system standpoint and what was being modeled for me. Then later on, there was more stuff. Uh, I had a brother who died when I was 13. He was uh, 20 and he died of cancer. So watching him get sick and die, lots of dysfunction in the family, lots of arguments. And on top of all of that, just the, the toxicity of the norm. Uh, what Gabor Mate, a brilliant doctor and writer on, on trauma, he, he calls the toxic norm of society, which is, you know, the the never-ending stress of the daily grind, the, the industrialization of the natural world, the hard, unyielding concrete surrounding us, the pollution, the pressure um, in school to you know sit still and, and pay attention and not move like your body wants to as a kid. All of these things also reinforced everything I had experienced. So this is a really important point is that someone can you know be brought up in a normal suburban setting with just sort of normal accepted you know societal norms being passed on i mean spanking was still totally accepted when i was growing up it's just normal right um and that just that adherence to the toxic norm of society is enough to set someone up for trauma especially if like me the wiring was compromised early on uh, through the stress in utero, through the early birth, the separation from my mom, all that stuff. So that's it in a nutshell, though a pretty big nutshell, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, um, so once you started realizing that, what was that experience like? 
Yeah, you said it started unfolding through an awakening experience. Mm-hmm. Just like, mm-hmm. if you want to share some more details. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, interestingly enough, and and this does get into a whole another subject, but my my spiritual awakening through the vipassana and the meditation actually cut me off further from my trauma. It was a blissful experience. It was a expansive experience. It was, um, you know, I think different people have different levels of just innate spiritual ability. And, and that I, in my belief is based on, you know, just how they've applied themselves through their many lifetimes. Um, I think I'm someone who spent many, many, many lives in the Buddhist tradition and in different spiritual traditions. So when I found Vipassana, it was like this, boom, it was like, uh, you know, the full deal, remembering past lives, remembering sitting in monk with monks in this chamber, like for doing this practice many, many lifetimes lots of big downloads of spiritual insight and information. And I actually got more separated from my trauma through that. It's, it's what we call spiritual bypassing, um, where essentially you get so bright in a way that you're able to ignore the darkness that's happening in your system. Uh, it wasn't until many years later that I began to realize all the stuff that I had missed under the surface. And that was part of the education. So it was sort of like this long road. I mean, I, I had this awakening experience through meditation and I developed, you know, really good abilities to track and notice myself. I mean, anyone who's done Vipassana um, knows that it basically is you're just sitting and scanning your body. You're scanning the inside of your body. And that, you know, turned out to be very useful skill when it came to actually resolving trauma. But at the time, I was actually dissociated from my trauma. I, I didn't know it was there until later when I started getting symptoms. And I guess that would be how I started discovering uh, what was really in there is I started realizing my anxiety. I started realizing my tendency towards depression, my tendency toward addiction, um, that's when I really started, I guess, discovering what was hiding under the surface, um, under those very expansive spiritual experiences. And that was, yeah, and that was part of the education. That was so, so when you ask, you know, when did you start to realize it wasn't until I moved into the world and started the, um, the therapy and then the training for myself that I really became to, you know, came to see what was going on there. And the symptoms you described, were those the ones you just mentioned? Yeah, mostly uh, social anxiety. Um, I began to, it was about maybe four years before I met my wife and I moved up to Vancouver. I was living at the Hot Springs Resort and I began to really notice how hard it was for me to go into the world. Um, I, we lived totally off grid. Um, we had you know pretty much everything we needed there. And when I would go into the nearest town, I could only hang out in town for a few hours and I would start to feel overwhelmed. And that's when I realized, wow, I actually, I'm pretty scared of the world. And um, that, was, that was sort of the first indicator. And then I started to see more patterns. I realized that I had a, a tendency towards um, isolation and withdrawal, depression, and then addiction. Um, to both uh, substances and behaviors. So that's, you know, it was really in the past three years living in the woods before I came to Vancouver that I was like, okay, there's, there's more going on here. Wow. So if we then shift the focus to, uh, to where you are today, how, um, cause I'm sensing you've done a lot of healing. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> would you consider yourself like to be fully healed from those specific traumas? <sighs> Well, that yes, um, and I have to qualify that statement. So when we talk about healing from this perspective, it's important to understand that you know once a system has been traumatized, it's not ever going to be the way it would have been if that trauma hadn't happened. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't completely heal, but we need to understand what healing means in this context. What it means is that the nervous system learns to become regulated. When under the surface there's all those fight, flight, and freeze survival responses going on, and they're, they're stuck and they're playing out over and over again, we call that dysregulation. The nervous system is dysregulated. It's, it's getting different signals about what to do. 
So healing is the ability to become regulated for the ability for those survival responses, for one, not to be trapped anymore in the system. They're allowed to be released. As that happens, we start to learn that we don't have to go into survival mode when a new stress comes in. And so we stop putting more junk in the pool, essentially. And those are sort of the two main hallmarks of healing in this process is we let the old, as my wife, Irene, who also does this work, she calls it, we let the balls out of the pool. It's like when we're living with trauma, it's like we, we're, you know, our body is this swimming pool and it's completely filled with all these beach balls which are those traumas, those survival responses. As we start to do this work, bringing a little bit more space, we start to let the balls out of the pool. And as that happens, we get more space and it's easier for the balls to move around and easier for them to get out. And we start to learn how to not take more balls into the pool. And our nervous system starts to become regulated. And you know, one of the amazing blessings of trauma is that I've found, and I've seen this in my clients too, that as that process happens and we become more regulated and we become resilient and have more capacity, a lot of times we end up actually having much more sensitivity and awareness than we may have had if we had not been through that trauma. Because the process of trauma healing is so deep. It requires so much surrender, so much education, about oneself, about one's physiology, about how to work with oneself, that when we come through the other side, it's like, yeah, maybe we're not the same as we would have been if it had never happened. We're actually sometimes even better. We have more capacity to deal with stress than maybe your average person because we've been through the ringer and come out the other side. So, you know, that's what I would define healing in this realm to be is we get more regulated, we learn how to keep from going into survival when stress happens. And we actually develop a lot of capacity to be uh, in the world, to be with stress in a, in a positive way. So then the, the natural next step would be to, to, to talk about, well, how do you actually do that kind of healing? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> kind of obvious. <laughs> we had to get there, right? <laughs> that's the tricky one, man. Yeah. So... <laughs> So I can definitely give you the overview. And the first thing to understand is that um, there's no cookie cutter method. And there's a lot of cookie cutter methods out there. There's a lot of techniques out there, all of which can be useful. But the really good trauma practitioner, trauma therapist, is the one who understands that the, the foundation of healing is safety, specifically safe relationship. Because trauma almost always happens in the context of unsafe relationships. And we need to have a safe foundation and a safe relationship, a safe home life uh, in order to heal at this level. So that's the foundation. I mean, there's many, many tools and I'll get into those. But the fundamental piece is safety. And along with that is what we call attunement. So the ability to feel what's happening in our clients Um, or for myself as a client, you know, when I was the the client and I had my good practitioners, that's what they were doing is they were providing that safety and they were providing this ability to attune to my unique system and what it needed in each changing moment. And that's really the foundation of good trauma work, safety, safety connection and attunement to each changing moment in a person and what's happening for them. And to support that, it's also very important to have a safe home life because without a safe haven to return to, you can do all sorts of good work in your session. And then if you come back to a threat that's still there, your system's not going to be able to integrate the work. That's the foundation. Um, Is that making sense? That makes total sense. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So once you have that, I mean, the attunement is the biggest piece. Without the attunement, without the ability to feel in myself what is happening in my client, I won't know how to respond appropriately. And again, this is a major piece that was missing um, in the formation of trauma. So I was talking about the toxic norm of society. You know, a huge part of that is that our parents, when we're kids, 
our parents are stressed. Our parents are, you know, trying to make the bills. They're trying to make the food, trying to make ends meet. They often don't have the time and the space or didn't receive the proper support that they know how to attune to their children. Now, when that's missing, that's one of those primary threats that the physiology senses as a survival threat. If our mom doesn't know how to attune to us, and like when, so when we cry, you know, when the baby cries, it's because they need something. It's not because they're emotionally upset. It's because they need something. An attuned caregiver, be it mother or father, can feel in themselves what it is their baby needs. And it's like, oh, that cry, I can tell that they need to have their diaper changed. I can tell that they're hungry. That's attunement. When that's missing, as it often is in our society, it's a huge rupture. It's a huge trauma to the system. And so we need to bring that into our relationship with our clients because it's what was missing. And a lot of the work of repairing trauma is by bringing in the stuff that didn't get to happen, which is that safety, that attunement, that safe connection, that container of that relationship. Um, so once you have that, then there are many, many ways to work with a person's system. Essentially, you know, the, the foundation of the work I do is an understanding that the human system and, and all mammalian systems really are inherently self-organizing, self-healing. They, they have an organic trend towards healing that they want to do. And our job, my job, is to basically support each client's system such that it can sense that, oh, okay, it's safe enough now that I can let out this survival charge. It's safe enough now that I can let out, the, let go of this emotion that I've been holding on to. Um, and the way that we provide those, like what we would call somatic interventions, really depends on each person and each moment. Um, a lot of the work that I do early on is from a modality called somatic practice, which is the work of Kathy Kane. And she teaches us to work directly with the physiology using touch. Again, many people, when they're young, don't get touched enough. Touch is you know, like healthy, safe, loving, caring touch is crucially important to the development of the human system. And so again, that's one of those pieces that often didn't get to happen. Either we didn't get any touch my clients or you know, people that I see didn't get enough touch or they got the wrong kind of touch, be it violent or sexual, whatever it may be. So safe, uh, caring, attuned touch applied to what we call the stress organs, especially, um, is a very effective way to start laying these foundations of safety and connection. So that might mean, for example, uh, working with someone's kidney adrenal interface. That's a, the kidneys and the adrenals are a huge part of the sympathetic, the fight, flight, survival response. So simply having a client lay on my table and I hold my hand under their kidney when the adrenal is sitting right on top of the kidney like a little hat. And often these kidneys will be very pulled up and tight, kind of dry feeling is the way I can describe it. And as I just sit there and I just sort of send this message of like, okay, you know, I'm here. I'm here. It's okay. There's no words spoken. It's all through touch and intention. The kidney will actually sense that. The adrenal gland will calm down. The kidney will soften and often start to drop uh, down into my hand a bit. And as that happens, that sends a signal to the whole nervous system like, oh, hey, maybe we're not all going to die. <laughs> like, maybe we can actually stop pumping out this adrenaline which in turn changes the entire state of the person. So that's a very long answer, and, and I hope that I'm not talking too much, but it, it's very complex. And, and these foundations of attunement, safety, connection, support are what form the foundation of the work. And that touch work specifically is a huge way that I'll start with people. Yeah, and you're not talking too much. That's sort of the idea here. <laughs> it's okay, for okay. you to talk. Okay. Oh, okay, good then. <laughs> yeah, so this um, is... Another area we'll work... Yeah, go um, ahead, go ahead. Briefly, I, I want to learn um, more. Just while I'm on touch work, you know. Uh, the kidney adrenal interface, 
The brainstem is another huge center of the survival response. It's sort of where we are, if we're anxious or what we call hypervigilant, like always looking for the next threat, that's happening primarily to a big degree in the brainstem. Um, so we'll support that in the same kind of way. Uh, the, the viscera, uh, the belly, the, the fascia, the intestines around there. You know, if you think about kids, you know, if as a kid, you walk into a room and there's like, there's something not right in the energy. There's a violence in the, the undertones or conflict. We'll feel it in our belly, um, which is actually our, our first brain as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, you know, we'll talk to the belly with that same kind of signal of safety, support. It's okay. I'm here. Um, all of these areas are very powerful places where we can just simply give um, the right kind of support, touch, and attunement. And the system can start to sense like, oh, okay, here's this attunement. Here's this care that I have never gotten. Um, in, many, in most cases, most of my clients, it's a very new experience for them. Cool. And then I am, um, I have a question based on my training as a, as a coach, where you look at what primary sense a person uses to, to, um, uh, you know, bring in information and make decisions, which, which can vary. Obviously we all use all our senses, but it tends to be either, you know, visual hearing or, or sort of feeling, uh, sensing that takes over. So if you're a person who, for instance, primarily relies on your hearing, uh, to, um, take in information and it tends also to be the case then you're, that you're a little bit uncomfortable with being touched. Mm -hmm. uh, would that mean that you would sort of start with hearing uh, or, you know, using sound mm -hmm. or noise to create safety instead of touch? Absolutely. You can, you can work through any of the senses. Um, most of my clients are, are pretty happy to receive touch, um, just because it's so, um, gentle, there's no manipulation, uh, it's fully clothed, you know, very safe. Um, but in some cases, yeah, there's people who are not comfortable with touch in those cases. There's many ways in, yeah, you can use sound. Um, I, I come from a music background, um, and I actually will use, um, I have a set of crystal singing bowls. I have a frame drum, shakers, different sound things to make different sounds in my office, um, which I have used in the past for sure. Um, also, just learning what we call orientation. That's a huge piece um, in, for any person. And that simply means sort of being aware of what's happening in the environment. Um, And, and like you say, how do we take in information? So if it's easy for someone to, to use their ears, then yeah, we might create pleasing sounds or we might simply encourage them to listen to the sounds that are happening around them, be it the sound of traffic or birds or you know, wind, rain, whatever it is. Um, if it's visual, we'll use the eyes. We will support them in orienting with their eyes, specifically by just letting their gaze wander around space, just wander around the room until they find something that's easy for their gaze to rest on. And then just hang out with that. Just like see what it's like to see that color, see what it's like to see that texture. Um, what might it be like to imagine that your eyes could draw in those colors and textures? What's that feel like in your body, right? So there's, there's many entryways in. Um, the sense of smell, you know, we can orient, we can go out to the forest and, or someplace that is pleasing in, in our, in our sense of smell and just hang out there, breathe it in. Um, whatever way that we can find to basically help start sending signals of, of safety in the moment, in the current present moment. Cool. So from that, you know, creation of a safe space or, or using your senses to find a safe space within you and, and around you, does then sort of healing automatically start as a result of that? Or is there's like a continuation to your practice or process from, from that as a starting point? Oh, for sure. Yeah. There's, there's lots of continuation, but that does usually start it. Um, even the practice of, yeah, just learning orientation, which is, you know, it's about connecting to safety in the environment. This is again, another reason it's very important that people have a safe home environment. Because orientation, if we think about mammals, you know, apart from us, if we think about all the mammals in the wild, they are all the time 
24-7 attuned and aware of both their environment and how their body feels in relationship to the environment. If they were not, they would be dead. They have to be. We, as, as human mammals, have to a large degree lost that. Um, so when we start to support people in, in cultivating that awareness that is actually part of just being alive, it's supposed to be anyway, that alone can start a lot of healing in the system. As a, it, it really wakes up the system. Now, the thing with trauma is that when that starts, it does not always feel good. That's the really important thing to understand about trauma healing is that we are encouraging the stuff that we've been avoiding for often our whole life to be felt. And the process of orientation of being aware of my environment and how I feel inside in relationship to my environment and learning to cultivate safety, that can start to let those things out of the box. So that's another really important piece is education. You have to educate your clients to know that when the orient, and often it's very pleasant at first. It might even be like a week where they're like, wow, I feel so much better just because I can pause and connect and like be aware of safety in my environment and how that feels. Nevertheless, inevitably, that is going to start letting the gremlins out of the box and they'll start to feel stuff that they've been trying to avoid feeling for a very long time. So that's the other piece is, okay, yeah, orienting and being aware in that way can start the process, but then you have to understand what's going to happen next, why it happens, and then you start to teach them and support them in learning how to work with the survival energy itself. Um, when it arises, it's very uncomfortable, especially at first. There's a lot of intense emotions associated with it, a lot of intense physical sensations, you know, shaking, trembling, um, feelings of constriction, tightness shallowness of breath, feeling of panic, um, fear, anger, intense grief, all of this can be unlocked in the system uh, just by you know the system starting to sense it's safe. Because like I said, the system has an organic trend towards healing. It wants to heal. So as soon as you start supporting its innate ability to heal by sensing its safety, it starts to do that. And then stuff starts to, starts to happen. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Cool. So, and I guess this differs a lot, but um, for how long roughly do you tend to work with one specific mm. client? Is it like, mm -hmm. can it all be done in one session? Is it oh, years God, and no. years? <laughs> yeah, no, never one session. There's no way. The simplest, the simplest client I had um, was a client that just had a simple case of shock trauma. Um, and to really answer your question, I guess I got to describe the different kinds of trauma uh -huh. briefly, if that's all right, because yeah. that great, greatly influences the amount of time. For someone like me who had what's called early developmental trauma, so perception of life threat, um, experiences of life threat in the womb as an infant and in the first three years, um, it's, it's longer. It takes longer um, because things that needed to get wired up often didn't get wired up in the brain and the nervous system, or they were wired incorrectly. And this brings up neuroplasticity, right? Our brain, our nervous system, those neurons, the nerves, they're all changeable in terms of the pathways used, um, but they're changeable in both directions. They're changeable in a way that can set us up um, for a lot of difficulty, which is what happens with trauma. But then they can change back to uh, a more cohesive, organic, flowing kind of state that's more supportive of health. Um, so that process is longer if someone's wiring got screwed up in the first three years of life like mine did. If someone had very good support early on, they had a good childhood, they had the right attunement, they had safety, their nervous system and their brain all formed correctly, and then say they get into a car accident or they're in a war, that's what's called shock trauma. There's a shock to the system, and that's we often will see that um, in what we call PTSD, uh, tremors, flashbacks. That's a very severe form of shock trauma, um, but that is generally much easier um, and, and quicker to fix than early developmental trauma. 
Um, again, which may sound really weird if you think about it. I'm basically what I'm saying is someone who had a good childhood, good upbringing, and then is in a war zone and sees their buddy get blown up, they will actually often have a quicker, shorter, easier path towards health than someone who just like grew up in suburbia like I did. Hmm. <laughs> because the things that get screwed up and miswired, it's much deeper and more insidious. Um, and I'm not talking about qualifying people's pain or emotional pain. It's all, there's no way to, you know, compare suffering. But in terms of the process, it's often a lot quicker to just address shock trauma. So I had a client who, you know, she had a good upbringing, healthy family, good relationships. She was in a car accident. And after about three months, I would say maybe eight sessions, she was good. She was all good. All her symptoms were gone. She was fine. Um, other clients I've been seeing for four years, um, and we're slowly, slowly, slowly (laughs) getting there. Um, cause you know, oftentimes what happens is it's not just one or the other, it's both. Like I said, in in industrialized society, very, very common to have early developmental trauma, um, and not really know it because it's so normalized, like the toxic norm, right? It's so normalized. And then what happens is if you get that early wiring kind of faulty, you're more predisposed towards further traumas. So what happens is you have early developmental trauma with lots of shock traumas on top of it. And that's actually mostly what I see is these much more complex cases where someone had trauma early in life that predisposed their system to keep on replaying uh, those traumas in various ways through different relationships, addictions, which leads to more shock trauma, etc., Um, so yeah, it can be anywhere from a few months to 10 years. It totally depends on what a person has been through. Yeah. Fully, fully get that. Um, and then my uh, curiosity, um, goes into how important is it to understand what or why the trauma is, Mm -hmm. uh, or yeah, how important is that to actually sort of drill down and understand it's because of this, or is it, is it sort of sufficient to just be like, you know, we're going to heal this and we're going to release all of these emotions Mm -hmm. and you might not even understand where they're from, where the trauma is from. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, having meaning is important, but it's only one little piece of the process. And with early developmental trauma, there often is no meaning because the trauma happens before you can form memory, before you have language, um, before you can make sense of what's going on. Um, so it is often useful for someone to make the connections. In my in my work, we support those in organ- sort of emerging organically for the person. We don't try to dig down into what happened and why you are the way you are and, you know, what the behaviors are and what the thoughts are, like, you know, in psychiatry or counseling or psychology and those more brain, mind-based practices. We support the system, the physiological system. And what happens is when meaning and connection is ready to be made, it just organically happens. And that can be a really beautiful experience for sure. Um, and it brings up a, g- a good point. You know, Peter Levine, the, the, or the originator of somatic experiencing, he came up with this model, which he calls SIBAM, S-I-B-A-M, which basically is a, um, an acronym for the sum of human experience. So sensation, image, behavior, affect, or or emotion, and meaning. So meaning is just one of these five elements. Um, And it's very easy to get over, uh, over coupled with meaning to like really just fixate on that. And then we lose those other crucial four pieces. Um, So we tend to to support the other elements of Saibam, the sensation, what are the images that arise, as these sensations or images happen, what kind of behavior emerges? How does the body want to move? What is the affect? What is the emotion that arises? And as those things are supported, the meaning can organically emerge. But yeah, sometimes there is none. Sometimes it's just like, I don't know where this is from. I don't know what the hell's going on. I'm just feeling this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So if, um, if anyone listening, you know, want to get, started in in 
unfolding their own potential traumas if they if they like what are the you've already sort of touched upon it in your own journey uh, what are what are some things to look for where are some places to potentially start just with yourself with your partner with your friends that kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah yeah um well there's a lot i mean one of the most important things is education um it's so important to understand and actually can bring a lot of relief. I mean, just understanding that, oh, like the reason I have these thoughts or think this way or behave this way is because of something that's happening in my physiology. And this is why I'm not crazy. This is just happening because of what I've experienced, which has made these things happen in my body. That can be so important. And and you can get that from many sources, that education. So um, there's lots of good books. Uh, by Peter Levine. He's got three. Um, Waking the Tiger was his seminal book. Um, In an Unspoken Voice was his second. Those are both really good. Also, Trauma and Memory is one of my favorite of his, specifically about how trauma impacts the different memory systems and how we have many different memory systems. So those are three really good ones that you can just pick up in most bookstores. Um, there's also tons of YouTube content. My wife, Irene, she, you know, she was in private practice like me and she's a visionary though, man. She's an entrepreneur. She, she realized that, you know, there is way too much demand for me to be able to meet it sitting in my office, seeing one person at a time. She's created a whole suite of online programs and resources for people to do this work in their home just because they're, there isn't enough, um, honestly, enough qualified practitioners to meet the demand. So, oh, you know, you can go to her YouTube channel. She's got a ton of content that you can get a deep education totally for free just by going to Irene Lyons' YouTube. Um, you can also read um, the blogs. You know, there's all sorts of writings. I've got a blog on my website. Irene has a blog on her website. Um, there's many other people who write about this. Um, other good books, uh, um, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, when it has some good writings, uh, the body keeps the score is a great one. Gabor Mate's writings and YouTube videos are amazing. So I would say that's where to start. Start with just learning, just educate yourself, um, about trauma and the nervous system and how it affects us. That alone is just, I've, I've seen it. You know, I, I help Irene in her YouTube channel answering comments. And we've also got a Facebook group um, that we run and it's called Healthy Nervous System Revolution. Um, all of those things, you know, people, they, they get a lot of ahas, a lot of relief. And some of them, a lot of changes just from consuming all the education and learning about it. So that that's the place to start in terms of, what to connect with and in terms of resources in terms of our relationships um, and our friends, our family, you know, if someone listening suspects that they have unresolved trauma, it's important to start looking at their relationships. You know, one thing that we see over and over again is, you know, what, what we resist persists. Um, The body always wants to heal. Like I said, and, it will often put us in the same situation over and over and over and over again because it's trying to find resolution. It's trying to find a different outcome. So that's why we see people who often end up in abusive relationships again and again and again, or they can't leave it. So, you know, look at your relationships. Are your relationships safe? Are they supportive? Are you able to be authentic? Right? Do you, do you know what your authenticity even feels like? Um, do you, are you connected with people that support you in feeling safe and like you can express yourself? These are all really important things to look at if we want to heal. Because a lot of us, me included, have had many toxic relationships that are echoes of the relationships we had when trauma was formed. So we need to look at that too. Hmm, that's fascinating. That brings up uh, a lot of stuff for me. So thank you. Thank you for that, Seth. And um, and then an obvious, an obvious for me insight. Uh, but I'll I'll just <laughs> I'll, I'll put it as a question or um, uh, similar. When you spoke about how 
when we're kids and if we have parents who are not, you know, they can't really tune to our, our needs. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, I'm a parent now. Uh, and I think I already know the answer to this, but in order to become a parent uh, who can attune to my child, if I'm not brought up with that skill, I guess it's about learning to attune to myself and then that could transfer to your, to your child. You got it. You got it. It's the best way. And, and really the only way that works um, is to start with ourselves. And um, it can be tough for, for parents, um, especially if they're realizing this as they already have kids, to even have the time. But it is so important um, to make that time for yourself to start this process because as we learn to attune to ourself and pay attention to ourselves, that growing regulation, that growing capacity naturally ripples out. Um, and has a lot more impact than any sort of behaviors that we may try to impose on our kids. So that is really the way to go. You got to work with yourself and just trust that that will ripple out because it does. Our, our kids will inherently sense those changes in us. Yeah, to me, just hearing you say that, it sort of lands as, in my mind at least, that the most important gift you can give your child. Like we want to bring our kids up and make sure they have everything they need. But the most important thing you can actually do is heal yourself. Um, that would be sort of the, yeah, the most epic mm -hmm. gift you could give. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then, you know, it can be tricky like to balance that, you know, with life, but it absolutely is the most powerful way. Absolutely. Fantastic set. So we're already coming up on the hour here. This is, is all fascinating stuff and you've already given us a lot of insights and also um, direction for where to start um, finding stuff if we want to mm -hmm. get more into this and learn more about totally. trauma or others. Is there anything else that you feel like you want to bring up or point people in the direction towards? Sure. Um, you know, just in terms of if people want further support, I, I mentioned a lot about education and, and you can do all of that for free. I mean, you can, I mean, a book costs a little bit, but I mean, the YouTube's all free, you know, blogs are free for very, very cheap. You can get a very good education, but if you want to actually do the work to do the trauma work does require professional support in some manner and that costs money. So that's just a practical thing to realize, you know, <laughs> for parents, one of the things that You know, the questions we get from people in our groups and our online programs are like, man, I, you know, my kid's young, but I feel like I've already screwed him up. Like, what do I do? I was like, well, okay, do your work and start putting, you know, some savings aside in a therapy fund for your kid. You know, don't worry about the college fund so much. Just <laughs> let's get a, a therapy fund going, you know, um, it, it's a practical consideration. And so for yourself too, like, you know, start realizing that, okay, if you want to solve this stuff, it is going to cost a little bit. Whether that means you're working one-on-one -on -one with a private practitioner or engaged in some other way. Um, my wife, Irene, uh, she has created two online programs. One, uh, which is called the 21-Day Nervous System Tune-Up. And the other one, which is called Smart Body, Smart Mind, which is a very intensive 12-week program that we run once a year. And uh, 21-Day is available anytime for people to start. Uh, both have uh, support in terms of a uh, Facebook group that's private that we staff with. There's a team of about uh, 10 of us now who are all somatic experiencing practitioners who are in there answering questions, supporting people in their process. Um, so that, again, it costs money, uh, but you can get started you know, for a lot less than you know, the cost of a new TV. You know? <laughs> like it's not, it's, if you think about it, it's not that much. Also, if you want, you know, if you, if you don't feel like online work is the way for you, you really want to work with a person, then you can check the somatic experiencing directory. If you just Google somatic experiencing and whatever country you're in, you'll find a directory for practitioners. Um, so that is another way to look. Um, I will say that a lot of somatic practitioners are fantastic. A lot of them are not. Just like anything, a modality isn't a guaranteed, you know, cure. It has to, it a lot depends on the user. The, the practitioners have to be good. So again, educate yourself first before you start seeking out one-on-one -on -one work. Um, you know, Irene has even a video on like what to look for in a good somatic practitioner. So really learn 
first, and then you'll know more when you go to work with someone. Like you'll be able to sense, like, oh, I can feel this person is attuning to me. I feel safe around them. I notice my body feels a little, little safer. Uh, they're maybe able to outline a treatment plan for you. Um, you know, like I said, it can, it's greatly variable, but they should be able to give some kind of rough idea of how you're going to work together. Um, so yeah, you can check out Somatic Experiencing. Somatic Practice by Kathy Kane is also really great. If you can find someone like me who has both, uh, that is fantastic. Um, those are about all the resources I can think of for doing the work um, and the ones that I really recommend. Cool. And then to find you, uh, I guess your website, it's SethLyon.com, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, SethLyon.com. Um, my wife is IreneLyon.com. Pretty easy. Pretty easy. <laughs> Fantastic, Seth. Uh, thank you for, for coming on the podcast and sharing all of these insights. It brought up some stuff for me that I'll uh, now instantly go and, and go deeper into. Thank you for that. It's part of my process. Um, uh, cool. So that said, for anyone listening, if you want to learn more, head over to Seth's or Irene's website or any of um, uh, the things that Seth just pointed you towards. And as always, or hopefully, well, you'll speak to me or hear me again next week take care guys Peace.